Hello, everyone. I am your host, Michael Bloxton, and I am inviting you to episode number two, Space Without Limits, with Dr. Namrata Gaswani. Did you know the Chinese have set a goal to dominate space as part of their China dream and have even written it into their constitution? Well, there's a lot most people do not know about space, but today we have a special guest who does, Dr. Namrata Gaswani. She has authored several books, including her latest, Scramble for the Skies, The Great Power Competition, to control resources of space. She's done extensive research that reports to the U.S. Congress on what world powers are doing to conquer the next frontier. Dr. Namrata Gaswani. Uh, thank you, Michael. It's a great honor to be on your show. And so thank you for having me. Absolutely. You have been someone that I have uh, been so fortunate to to hear from uh, directly and indirectly. I've seen you uh, in, in many of the publications. Uh, I think it was the latest was Wall Street Journal uh, that you were uh, quoted in for some of the work that you've done. I've seen you directly speak on stages. I've seen you in conversations with uh, generals. I have seen your expertise uh, across the board, and I don't know of anyone that has the expertise that you have. So if there's anything in your background that you would like to point out for this conversation, uh, would you please share it uh, with us? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in terms of looking at how I view space, so I have a PhD in international relations, and I view space as part of grand strategy. So in countries overall, comprehensive national power. And uh, for your audience, uh, my work on China and India's uh, space program within that particular conceptual framework was supported by the uh, Minerva Research Grant from the Office of the U.S. Secretary of Defense. And I've spent actually nearly 10 years looking at especially how China is viewing itself and also how it contributes to its own leadership structures not just in space, but overall. So that's a little background for myself. I appreciate, I appreciate it so much. And I know that our audience is going to appreciate it even more as they, they listen and we start to really peel back all the different layers here. The, I think the most common understanding of space power is governments and government agencies. Right now, if I were to ask the average American, I don't think they would necessarily assess China as a space power. I think there's a lot of sectors that don't assess China as a power, whether that's AI, whether that's um, finance, whether that's technology. There are a lot of ways in which China has shown up. And, and what we're talking about here today is specifically space power. Who do you see as space powers in the world today? Sure, Michael. So if you look at the world today, first of all, there is a clear uh, difference from how space was conceptualized during the Cold War, by which I mean the end of the Second World War, 1945, to about 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union. So at that time, space was viewed a lot from prestige perspective, from showing off technology, as well as by being able to show uh, human presence, for example, on the moon for a few days and bringing them back. Today, if you look at the world and how it's conceptualized, there are at least uh, four countries that I view as great space powers. One is, of course, the United States, which leads in terms of space technology and capacity and uh, showcasing presence, for example, in low Earth orbit. Then you have China. China is actually a very advanced spacefaring nation, uh, very similar to the U.S. It has a capability to... Uh, sustain human presence in low Earth orbit and has very grand ambitions to establish a permanent presence on the moon by 2036 and then to have uh, constructed concepts like space-based solar power. China is also actually leading in uh, technologies like quantum communication. The third space power is Russia. So we tend to uh, negate Russia because of the collapse of the Soviet Union, but Russia actually inherited almost the entire Soviet space program. And it's one of the countries that is able to not just launch to space, but also have technology uh, transfer and relationships with other countries, for example, like China and India, and that can actually give it a lot of influence. And then the final space power is, of course, India. India is a very advanced spacefaring nation with independent launch capacity and also has the ability to send robotic missions, for example, to the moon and Mars. Thank you, Namrata. The the fun part of this would of me the, the fun part of what I would love to dive into is India. Uh, the 
scary part of me wants to really understand China. And China has come from a hundred something economy two or three decades ago to a number two economy. You just listed them as a number two space power. Uh, the the presence, the ever present real um, danger that we have is the difference in ideology and morality. I believe you've also dug into what they see as as their rights and why they wrote into the constitution. Could you expand on that? Sure. So uh, what is interesting from anybody studying China, especially looking deep into their space program, is that first of all, their space program is conceptualized as a civil military fusion program. So that's the key difference, for example, with the program in the US where you have very clear civilian and military structures. So under President Xi Jinping, who became the president of China in 2013, uh, and he's also the commander in chief of the Central Military Commission, uh, President Xi identified space as part of China's dream, and by which he argues that by 2049, which is the 100th year celebration of the establishment of the People's Republic of China, uh, China will actually become the lead actor in space. And by that, he argues two very critical points. One is that this particular revolution in technology for China, including space, artificial intelligence, robotics, will be led and directed by the Communist Party of China. Now, to achieve that particular goal, what uh, President Xi actually uh, basically maneuvered is that they included the concept of the China dream that includes the space dream in the Communist Party of China constitution in 2017. So that means that the focus for space has a very strong ideological backing, but also is now part of the constitution of the most important actor in China. This is something new. It had not happened historically. Scary. Um, honestly, inspiring to have someone so dedicated to something that they write it into their, their most, um, I guess, foundational document, their own constitution. Inspiring. I wish we would take that step too. Um, has, has India done anything like this? No. So India has a very uh, different uh, structure in terms of a political system. So China, as you know, is led by a one party system. And the Communist Party of China is actually a very deeply interconnected uh, to the existence of the Chinese state since 1949. India is a democratic country, so very similar to the US, it has to go through elections. It has a prime ministerial system, a parliament, which is what it differs from. But then you have electorates and the constitution uh, is such that any change in the constitution would require two third majority of parliament, which is very difficult to enshrine. And no, China has, uh, India, uh, beg, beg your pardon, has not uh, constituted the establishment of an India dream that includes the goal of becoming the foremost nation in space by 2049, hypothetically. Uh, so India has not done something similar. Uh, and neither has the United path. States. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Very yes. different path. And it's, it's unfortunate um, that we don't have that clarity. The way that I understand China, and, and correct me if I'm wrong with your understanding, uh, two things, many things scare me, but two things particularly Xi Jinping has made him, has become president and then eliminated the terms of presidents. So in essence, making him a de facto dictator forever um, until, until he sees fit or not fit. Is that accurate? Yes, that is correct. So that also was a change to the constitution and uh, he's made himself president for life. So very different from, say, Hu Zingtao, who was before him. So just for your audience, the usual turnover of the Chinese uh, top leadership is 10 years. And this has been followed after Mao Zedong died. But uh, she has changed that. And now he's made himself for life. Yes. So that scares me. The other thing that I find interesting, we talk about two-thirds majority. United States has a similar um, policy um, or really a, a, a built-in check and balance. And now that it, that it, that isn't present in China, is the is the the PRC? It's really the elite of the entire um, Chinese um, uh, culture that that is running the entire Chinese economy, and I believe that's only a few hundred people. Is do you, do you have better info, information on that? So if you look at the uh, constitution of how the Communist Party is run. 
So uh, you're correct in a sense that if you look at the policy making bodies, that includes the state council and the Politburo, which is a very limited number of top leadership. But then what is interesting is that you have party representative across different provinces. So, for example, uh, Shenzhen is one of the most advanced provinces in regard to uh, technology development. Huawei, which is India's five, uh, sorry, China's 5G company, is in Huawei. And so uh, the how it's run is that you have the top leadership in Beijing, but then you have regional leaderships of the Communist Party of China across different regions and provinces. So you do have a very limited elite structure at the top. But then you have trickle down effect of different elite structures and provinces as well. And so, yeah, your assessment that there are very few people running the top policy is correct. But then they also have intra-party conversations. They have feedback loops. For example, why did President Xi make himself president for life? Why is it that he... Uh, basically pointed out that China needs to focus on innovation and the three technologies China should seriously build is space, artificial intelligence, and robotics. It's because there was a huge feedback loop through the People's Congress, which they have every year. And that's how you talk to younger members of your party who then tells you what should be the most important, uh, you know, uh, technologies to invest in. And then they run the models and look at their financial, uh, you know, turnover. And that's how they decide. So it's a very interesting system that you have there. It sounds, um, it sounds fantastic except the bad side of it, which we will get to in a second. It's, it sounds to me, if I were to, to dumb it down for my own, um, own, own consumption, it sounds like you're a corporation. You have a, a CEO, you have a board of directors, but pretty much the CEO and the chairman set the vision, set the, the path forward, and everything else below you is there to support you. Not so much in India, not so much in the US, but China has set it up that way. And it again, that's where that two-thirds majority comes in. You need to actually have the body pers- uh, pushing the agenda, not the head, so to speak, pushing the agenda. And we don't, we don't really see that in in our uh, democratic culture outside of businesses. But that's what you see exactly what you see in China. Uh, so he's able to make these broad strokes without much pushback. Yes, and also because they don't have a free press and a free judiciary. So that helps. So uh, if you do not have critique of your policies, you can basically institute what you think is in China's interest. Uh, And so uh, one way that uh, China institutes policy is, first of all, to look at the world. For example, they have very deep study of the U.S., including the U.S. space program, and see what are the kind of conversations that are happening. So, for example, when there was this conversation about the critical importance of the moon by Paul Spudis and Dennis Wingo in their books and their public uh, discussions, you saw that in China you had a parallel discussion happening uh, from the Chinese space scientists like Wu Wenrin, who's the head of their lunar exploration program. But where they deviated, and this is where your point comes in, is that unlike the U.S. where you had changes in terms of what should be the mission of NASA, once we have a change in administration from, say, George W. Bush to Obama to President Trump and then to President Biden, there is there is a very clear uh, strategic long-term vision that does not change with change in leaderships. And so it's a very interesting way that they unfold. And you can see the effect of it today. So some of the programs that we see, for example, uh, China's landing on the far side of the moon uh, very successfully in 2019 was a mission that was planned 20 years ago. And they continued to have that particular focus. The couple threads I want to pull on there, we have we have free press. That is That is something that I believe works for our advantage and against us. Obviously, we saw Russia's definitive proof in the 2016 election. They're meddling in our what we believe to be our free thought, free speech. Um, we're really using algorithms against us. And when you think about discussions about space, we have free press, so people can push back. You know, Why are we supporting SLS? Why are we supporting SpaceX? And that absolutely does have an impact. And I know uh, as a as a, a natural U.S. citizen, seeing the development of my role and my vote, uh, 
get cast, I don't know, I don't ever really feel like it has an impact. But looking broadly, it absolutely has an impact because you don't have the impact in China. So you don't have any pushback from the public about, oh, we shouldn't go to the moon. Oh, we shouldn't make these resources. If if Xi Jinping, as the head of that, you know, China corporation, uh, you know, for, for nomenclature, if he says it's that's what they're going to do, then that's what they're going to do. And not having free press relieves them of that but then also doesn't call them out for things they shouldn't be doing, like concentration camps and uh, all sorts of other things that are uh, that that they can pass because they don't have the oversight that that we do. Yes, and also, for example, there is no robust investment of how finances are being invested, right? Uh, and so there could be dissenting voices, but we do not hear about them. There could be vigorous debates about that China should not be investing, for example, in a particular capacity, but we do not hear about it. And, and also, I think what happens is that once you have such a control system, and this is one of the strategic uh, vulnerability of China, is that it is very worried if any kind of dissenting voices makes it through into their uh, social spaces. So it has a firewall, constant monitoring of what people are saying, which can be very costly and also shows you that there is a regime vulnerability in place as well because uh, the Communist Party of China is very, very uncomfortable with any critique on its ideology. Now, to take your metaphor, uh, is it like a corporation? Sounds like it is, but then historically, uh, what what is so interesting is that uh, they view themselves as being very much ideologically inspired, which is not usually the case with corporations. There could be, corporations might have some ethical uh, ideological leanings, but would not be very much uh, projecting that as their strategic vision. I think what you're saying is that it could be run like that. But then uh, what is interesting is that in my conversations when I visited China, they were very clear that their entire focus on developing China was for two very important reasons, including in space. One is for showcasing the attractiveness of Chinese communism with Chinese characteristics to the world so that the world can think of emulating it. And second, it was all about national rejuvenation of Chinese civilization and culture. So historically, China has viewed itself as a very critical part of the world and uh, saw themselves as humiliated during the uh, 100-year humiliation uh, century, including because of British and uh, Western uh, influence there. And so they argue that with this kind of investment, they can actually bring back that status and rejuvenation. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about the threats later, but just to understand how they are so ideologically driven. And that can have a lot of uh, intensity and passion as well. I I love that point. I don't think most American uh, and Westerners appreciate China's history. I mean, you've got thousands of years of them yeah. being the the prime culture of the entire world. Uh, it was by happenstance they burnt their own navy down. Um, not a yeah. not a not a shining point for them. And it was this blip of time in a, a multi-thousand year history that the U.S. rose and the world became what it was to allow the U.S. to rise. And and they when they talk about, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, when they talk about Western influence in that 100-year humiliation, the United States was notably absent because we didn't have that type of influence or capability at that time. Uh, we, were, we were there and brought in during the World Wars, not necessarily before to make that influence. Which I, which I find interesting and historical. Uh, is that accurate, that the United States didn't have that much influence directly in, in China for that time? Yes, at least in terms of presence. So the U.S., for example, the uh, countries around the world, including because of British colonialism, did uh, very much, were very much inspired by what happened in 1776, the establishment of the United States as the first modern democracy, the first experiment, because every everywhere in Europe there were monarchies. So you did have additional, if I may, the influence of ideas. But you're correct that in terms of strategic presence, the British Navy was dominant at the time, and the U.S. was not such a presence as it is today in the Indo-Pacific and China uh, and areas around China. At simultaneously, what was happening with with India around this same time? 
So around the same time, India was, of course, under British uh, colonialism. And uh, since 1757, uh, the British colonial uh, presence has been very strong. And so India was uh, being dominated. And there were these arguments that British colonialism led to a lot of exploitation of India's uh, you know, human capital, raw materials, and being uh, ex- exploited by the fact that raw materials were sent, sometimes without any kind of payment, back to the UK. Uh, and the British Empire, and then uh, return as manufactured goods, right? And so India got its independence in 1947 after the Second World War. And as you know, Mahatma Gandhi was one of the leaders of India's independence movement. And so India and China actually came out uh, at that time, uh, both suffering from centuries of humiliation. And what is interesting is that this is where India deviates a little bit from China, that India actually became a part of the democratic order because of certain leaders like uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, who was India's first prime minister. And India's independence was won without uh, violence. So it was a nonviolent activity. Whereas in China's case, Mao was, of course, the biggest uh, ideological thinker in terms of guerrilla warfare, the utilization of people's war vis-a-vis Japan, uh, and also Chiang Kai-shek. And so it's a very different pathway for both countries. But they both suffered from uh, centuries of colonial uh, exploitation. China lesser because India was uh, basically ruled and governed by the British Empire. China was not. So it's an interesting it's an interesting point to make again, looking at the history of where they're coming from. So they both had the same oppression or, or a similar a similar series of, of oppressive events. But the response to that was different. I, and I know I, I can't remember how many people told me it's not what happens to you, it's how you respond to what happens to you. And China responded in that guerrilla warfare sense, and India responded in a democratic sense. Yet today, you know, uh, not quite 100 years later, we're discussing space powers and US obviously being number one, China number two, Russia number three, and India number four. So, so all of those people are still on the same stage. And I, I think it's also relevant to state the billion people that each of uh, from India and China, uh, if, if you think about human capital, and I know the, uh, the amount of STEM, re, uh, not research, but education that's happening in both of those countries yeah. is astounding. I wish we could emulate that. Can you speak to, to that initiative? Yeah, sure. So actually for China, the uh, education in STEM is part of their innovation strategy. And this has been going on actually not just with President Xi Jinping, but Hu Jintao, the first person who thought about forwarding the education in sciences and technology was Deng Xiaoping. And Deng Xiaoping was the man who opened up China to the world in 1978. And so there was this focus, there was this understanding that if you have a, a, a basically a citizenry that is skilled in STEM, you will be actually be able to contribute to the world as well as to your own development as a civilizational state, right? And so in China, what is interesting is that there are two standards that they have. One is that they're looking at how their uh, STEM-educated population also are able to go abroad for higher studies especially in very good Western universities. And then what is more interesting is that they're offering very high competitive salaries to draw them back. So if you look at uh, China's space program today, they are about the ninth generation of space scientists. And most of their space scientists of the younger generation in the mid-career level uh, are actually mostly educated outside of China. And so they have a very good skill set. And then they are offering very high salaries. Now, in the case of India, again, there has been a big focus through the Indian Institutes of Technologies and other engineering institutes to develop India's uh, skill base. And for example, the first prime minister of India, Nehru, and the continuous prime ministers after that, including Modi, also have a push to manufacture and build India's skill set. But I would argue that India is not yet at the level that China is because of China's ability to build institutions, to compete uh, at the international level, for example, publication of peer-reviewed scientific papers, and the investment in R&D, the research and development, is very high in China. China is actually now, according to the National Science Foundation, very close to the U.S. U.S. spends about $500 billion approximately on research and development. China is about $485 billion. 
So they're catching up. And most of their space companies are prioritizing research and development investments. So it's a very, very different scale of ambition. Interesting. I believe I just read uh, that something like the top five U.S. space companies only contribute under $7 billion a year to R&D. But at the, five, the top five tech companies in the United States have over $70 billion a year. And there's a stark difference, obviously, where innovation is coming from, Silicon Valley versus um, the belt. And now you're saying China is pushing very heavily on their own space R&D. That is the future. R&D is the future. It was, it was our own Skunk Works and, and General Schriever that have helped us create the capabilities um, in R&D that we have today. It's, it's interesting that the stark difference. I, I don't think India... India didn't have the opportunity, I think, that we gave China. If I look back, there was a, a definitive, aggressive party against the U.S., and the U.S. has repeatedly tried to make others like us, which makes sense from a very diplomatic um, global perspective. And we poured resources. We poured opportunity into those things, helped create all that infrastructure. And uniquely, China didn't quite care about privacy or intellectual property. So it was happy to take everything and anything that it possibly got its hands on. And we didn't, one, we didn't give that opportunity to India. Two, India respected our IP. So they weren't stealing their way ahead. And they weren't also being given the, the same opportunity that China did. Uh, any perspective on that? Yeah, so if you look at uh, what the, uh, at that time, so let's go back, say, to the 1970s, 80s, 90s, when there were this, uh, and especially uh, including President Bill Clinton's uh, term, right? So there was this interesting American hope that once you develop Chinese uh, private sector, so-called private sector, once you have more and more interactions with the world, once you have an open up China that actually Chinese citizens traveling all across the world, the Chinese diaspora and investments, foreign direct investments, that will lead to, so economic empowerment by default would lead to democratic institutions. That was the liberal hope. I use the word liberal from a classical sense, which is that uh, in the UK, for example, J.S. Mill's famous essay on liberty, that the moment you have an, an, an empowered citizenry, you will develop the government that you want to be want your you to be represented in, right? So that was the hope for American investments as well. And we shouldn't forget that the China uh, opened up 20 years before India. So 1978, India opened up to the world in 1991, right? Because of its financial crisis and defaulting fears. So that said, what happened was that I don't think the, uh, because we were, because Americans tend to mirror image, if I may, because they see the world in their image, they think that everybody else would should have their, the same culture, the same ambitions. I think there is a misunderstanding that other societies and countries might have a very different strategic culture and political culture. And so I argue that in China, the end of democracy was in 1989 with Tiananmen Square. And so when Deng Xiaoping, uh, actually Deng, Deng was a very open, uh, willing to have uh, critical conversations within the party to improve the party. He suffered a lot under Mao Zedong, who tried to purge him. His own son died by being thrown from the third story of a building because of Mao's purges during the Cultural Revolution. But what happened was that people didn't realize that Deng, despite all that, was an ideologue. He was a deeply wedded to the ideology of the Communist Party of China. And so when the democratic student uh, demonstrations happen for democracy in China, uh, Deng basically responded with a heavy hand with tanks and soldiers killing nearly 10,000 people. And that was the end of democracy and any kind of intra-party conversations. And so, and despite that, I think America still hope that the more you invest in China, the more you include China in international institutions, including membership in the World Trade Organization in 2001, that China would become like America. Right. But anybody who studies China and Chinese culture and how they are constituted, they are different and they might not have the same uh, desires that an American might have. American. I, I don't think it's ignorance. I think it's um, rose colored glasses, American colored glasses. I, I don't I, I know people today, prominent, smart people that are, are literally saying you should go to China and do this thing. 
to business owners. And it's just asinine to think about what, you know, case after case after case after case, what happens when a U.S. business goes to China? That U.S. business is out of business in some period of time after because China will do it for cheaper. I've saw it myself. And um, for those that are listening, I have 15 years of telecom finance background. I saw it happen in cell towers. When Huawei came out with 5G, you had American companies offering to build cell tower communication systems for the whole country at cost. And China would come in and do it for free because they wanted control. And now those countries are in quite a bit of a pinch with different debt instruments and things like that. Uh, fascinating to see that the, the, what the good and the bad of the, the U.S. rose-colored glasses, if you will. I, I personally grew up in Philadelphia as well, and I still say that Philadelphia is a land island. There are people I know that haven't been to New York, and it's an $18 bus ride. Uh, from Philadelphia to New York. And there's this understanding. And, and again, for all intents and purposes, US is an island. We've got oceans on two sides um, and and not powerful neighbors, uh, north and south. So we get to set the tone of what happens on, in this part of the world. And NAFTA is obviously a, an even better official agreement that demonstrates uh, our, our capability to influence this entire hemisphere. So sad to see, I don't know uh, from my perspective, and I'd love to learn from you, what are the opportunities here? If, if China is taking the stance that they are definitively and clearly, uh, and India is, is taking another road, we get to see kind of, it's, it's a wonderful thesis we have. Oh, and by the way, I do agree that US is a clinger. We hung on way too long, hoping China would spin around, yeah. which it didn't. Because I think, again, China or US didn't appreciate the 5,000 years of history that we're playing into that entire uh, time, time frame. And China saw it as a great opportunity to take advantage of these gifts that were, they were being given, all this intellectual property. India did it the right way, um, too, a little too late to really keep pace with China and hopefully together as Western, you know, uh, a united democratic presence going forward, we can do things better. What are the opportunities for us, people that are listening, people that, that are learning about the, the stark difference between how China operates and how democratic nations operate? What do you see the, as opportunities for us? Sure. So I think uh, having said, so when, when people ask me like, why do you study China or why do you study China's space program in particular, right? So in my assumption, if you are a grand strategic thinker and you do want to understand how a country who is competing with you is uh, constituted, it's very important to understand it from that particular country's perspective without having a subjective assessment based on your own lenses, right? And so for that, there are two things that come out from China's space program, and I'll respond to how that could be an opportunity for, say, the US or India, for example. So one is that, uh, first, there is the very critical dimension of uh, national security in China's space program, So, which means that their investments in their civilian space program are very directly connected to their military space program. And they make it very clear. It's not like they're hiding it. They, they say that this is about civil-military fusion, and since 2019, they have uh, constituted a civil-military fusion unit in their Politburo. So for your audience, the Politburo is the highest policymaking body uh, within the Communist Party of China. So it's a very critical body. And the second important thing is that they also want to assume leadership in space by 2049 for two reasons. One, so that they can append an American-led world order because they connect space leadership to global leadership on Earth as well. And they're uncomfortable with an American-led world order for the reasons I pointed out, an alternative system, which includes their development of the Belt and Road Initiative, for example, that includes the spatial information corridor now, by which I mean space collaboration. And don't forget, there are 139 member nations that have joined the Belt and Road Initiative, including certain US allies like New Zealand and Austria and Italy and Luxembourg, right? And so these are very important dimensions to be kept in mind. Now, having looked at that and having looked at how they are constituting their space program, so their space program is not an end in itself. It's not about developing technology or the means to send humans, for example, to the moon for a few days. Their space program is about sustainable permanent presence and ensuring access to space for Chinese great power advantage. So it's very clear in their articulation. Now, what could be the opportunities given this particular articulation? One, 
I think the U.S. still is seen as a leader in terms of constituting rules of the road. So we have countries that have signed on to the U.S., for example, the Artemis Accord, uh, the China-Russia Lunar uh, Exploration Agreement that they signed last year hasn't been able to garner that much uh, you know, bilateral relationships or agreements, like, for example, NASA's Artemis Accord. So there is that reputation. There is the important leadership in terms of setting the rules and the regulations, for example, at the level of the U.N. And I think the other third advantage is that democratic societies are creative. So, I mean, we cannot forget that we have a very vibrant private sector and you did have a Blue Origin and a SpaceX and a Made in Space and Maston Space in the U.S., right? You had reusable technology developed here. And that's because U.S. is also open to high-skill migration. Musk himself is an immigrant from South Africa and Canada, right? And so I think those are the advantages uh, and also the other advantage today that I see, which I'm very happy to see, and one of my critique historically has been that the U.S. is not able to commit to a long-term space vision. So as I mentioned before, Michael, there is a change of mission. For example, let me give you a concrete example, right? So when George W. Bush was president, he identified a vision for space exploration in which he said that the Americans should go back to the moon by 2004. Uh, at the same time, the Chinese Lunar Exploration Program was established, uh, and Ouyang Xiang and Wu Wering, who are the head designers and founders of that program, pointed out that the China is going to the moon for lunar extraction and resource utilization. There was no mention of a human moon program, right? They were very clear. So that's number one. So uh, and so, my critique was that. Once Bush, uh, you know, basically he finished his two terms and then you had President Barack Obama, uh, he basically changed the vision of the space program, saying that we have been to the moon, we don't need to get there anymore, so we should go for asteroid exploration, right? Which is a good thing, but then what happens to the continuity, right? And then when President Trump came along, it was the moon to Mars program. Today, I think because of critique and because of pointing out that this could lead to a weakening of U.S. space leadership, there is a continuation of support for the Artemis Accord, including uh, supporting the U.S. Space Force. Now, that's a good thing. I'll end by saying well, there is something that still needs to be done, and that is unlike China that has clearly articulated why it is investing in space, space resource utilization, developing renewable technology like space-based solar power, and developing their civil military fusion capability, the U.S. hasn't been able to come up with a clear strategic vision of why is it going to space in the, in the 21st century, right? Seems like NASA still has 20th century goals of being able to send humans for a few days to the moon back and bringing them back, right? But I do not hear an economic perspective. I do not hear why is it that the U.S. wants to go to space? Is it because it wants to be the leader in terms of enabling space development, or is it about space exploration? So I think that could be a disadvantage if you do not have such clearly articulated vision, because countries, so space is such that countries are watching you. And if you do not have a clear-cut vision, you do not include them in your vision, like China is doing through the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, basically telling countries that we will invest in your space infrastructure and uh, offer you loans at a very, uh, you know, good rate, but we do know that they could be predatory too. But the U.S. is not coming up with an alternate institutional vision or long-term plan. And that could be, uh, that could lead to a weakening of U.S. leadership. Uh, lead to or is already showing itself? Um, we don't have to go down that rabbit hole. I wanted to create this program for the fact uh, that I don't see the same thing. I don't see a unified vision. Uh, one one thing that I've seen in, in the different um, events that I've been invited to for DOD or Air Force or Space Force or, or White House stuff is a lack of vision. And I am preaching to the choir, obviously, about needing a vision and getting all of the thousands and thousands of different units, agencies within whatever DOD or government agency to, to row in the right direction. The purpose of this program is for people to find your place in space. And what I, what I aspire to do is to bring on amazing, smart people like yourself that can educate the average person so they can understand what the actual ground play is 
Uh, someone once explained it to me like a map. A map, if assuming first you have an understanding of the lay of the land, which is the first thing a map does. Second thing is you need to know either where you are and third is where you're going. Without those three fundamental things, you are lost. You don't have a map. You don't know where you are. You don't know where you're going. Nothing is happening. And I think we've got through through this conversation, I, I again am, am educated by your expertise in understanding the lay of the land. I see India as this amazing asset that has yet to fully develop into the, the humming um, capability that I think it will be. I, I am now even more clear as to why China is a threat to our way of life. And again, they're, they're good with concentration camps. They're good with killing for the sake of the message. Uh, we are not. I don't think those are good things for humans. And this entire push to find uh, help people understand your place in space is, is why, why I created this program, why I believe we need to be understanding what our enemy is doing, what our assets are, and where to go. Have you heard, I mean, in my personal opinion, I have never met a, a military service member that wasn't supportive. I have literally never met someone who was like, who's just turned turned me around and said, get out of my office. Everyone has been supportive. Every civil servant I've gone to has been supportive. Uh, I, I rarely meet a civil servant who's capable of executing. They're so tied by red tape and their hands are tied behind their back. Even if there's, even if you present them with exactly what it is that they want, how they want it, where they want it, when they want it, sometimes they can't even acquire it because of all the red tape. Have you had either uh, uh, on the good side of that? Have you had an experience where you've seen uh, a kind of a counterculture or subculture in the United States, whether it's the military complex or even NASA, that is moving us into this broader, longer vision? Yeah, well, that's a great question. So, uh, I mean, if you look at the military, for example, let's look at the newly established U.S. Space Force, right, since uh, established since 2019. So some of the documents that have come out, uh, for example, supported by the U.S. Space Force Chief Scientist Office, uh, which looks at long-term futures, including uh, uh, where the space economy will be in 2060 and what should be the role of the Space Force in it. Uh, you have documents uh, basically articulating that there could be a possibility that you, have, you will have American citizens uh, working and living in space. And if that is the future, uh, what should be the role of a military service? So you have these conversations. But I would argue that that has not really made it into the tactical operational manuals as yet. Right. So if you look at the Space Force as it is constituted today, it's a lot about uh, terrestrial support, understandable, because the other services depend on space for a very, very key functions like command and control, moving of forces out of line of sight, you know, GPS support and so forth. Right. Or missile warning and tracking. But I think what is so important is that uh you need to have these strategic conversations. So I make a difference between tactical and strategic, and I see myself as more a grand strategic thinker. So I argue that you need both. You need uh, great expertise, operational capability when it comes to defending a satellite, ensuring that your satellite assets, including your strategic warning satellites for nuclear command and control are safe. Because as you know, Russia has tested an anti-satellite weapon in November of 2021, and China is continuously developing that capacity. So they could be under threat. And so that's a very important function. But I think in the long term, it's also important to have that grand strategic vision of where your space service should be. So to answer your question, I have had these conversations about long-term futures. I see that there is understanding of it at the leadership level to an extent. But then, as you said, because of administration, policy guidance, because of red tape, because of the hesitancy to invest in long-term because space is a long-term investment in building capacity, there is a lot of red tape uh, and uh, hesitancy as well. But that's the nature of democracy. We've got this far despite that. So I'm hopeful that because of a push by a small group uh, to think about future and grand strategic thinking, which China is doing, uh, so that could actually lead to a more positive uh, you know, development. Let's hope that that would be the case. Margaret Mead has a quote uh, that I that I appreciate. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens 
can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. That gives me hope because you're not talking about the broader United States government is going to take yeah. care of me, which I think in, I mean, this goes back to when the constitution was written and we declared independence, the, the school of thought that the, the federal government should be the thing that kind of takes care of everything more along the communist side of things um, versus the federal government should just be a, a, a low supportive infrastructure piece. Um, I, I find hope in when I talk to entrepreneurs and I think entrepreneurs are are the real opportunity for humanity or, or, or for for morality uh, in the freedom side of things. And and again, to be clear, um, I've I don't meet a lot of bad people, bad actors. There are very few bad actors that I've ever met. Um, I have met a few, but the vast majority of people, whether you know here in the United States or when I travel abroad, abroad, are good people, and they want good things. They want good things for their children. They want good things for their grandchildren. They want good things for their neighbor to happen. And most people, again, aren't jealous people that want to, that don't, that if they can't have it, they don't want you to have it. So I don't find that to be the, the human way of life, but I also have learned not to keep my U.S. rose-colored glasses on and to see what happens when other actors like China are doing the things that they're doing and what we need to do about it. I do believe that, I, I strong, strongly believe that even if the United States were to set a vision today, it would be too late. I think we, yeah. I think we need to look to the entrepreneurs, and I think we need to look to the the private community to be in the, in the broader democratic community globally. India, especially uh, Australia, now recently with some really good advancements uh, towards their space yeah. vision, which I'm not clear exactly what it is, but I know they have a space agency now. I know they're working even more closely with NASA and the U.S. Department of Defense. I believe that's where we need to be. And again, the point of this entire call is to find those people that are enthusiasts, people that are interested in this. One thing, if we were to talk about vision, if I asked almost anybody, where does Elon Musk want to go? Everyone's going to say Mars. Everyone knows that Musk wants to go to Mars. It is clear. Yeah. And the people that are in the know know that China wants to control the Southern pole of the the, the moon. And yeah. it's clear. Where you brought it up yourself? Where does NASA want to go? They want to throw a couple people around the moon and maybe spend a few days. Like that's all right. That's that's not that exciting. And I I think we're missing that opportunity. Is there are there any other actors? If we look at the lay of the land, are there any other actors that we should really be aware of that we should be paying attention to? People that are either good or bad, or is there anything else? Again, I I personally don't know a ton about India. I just brought up Australia. Um, I think there's there's other assets we could be aware of to to make sure if we are in the commercial community, we can be reaching out to. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, India actually, uh, as I mentioned, uh, has a very uh, vibrant space program and also uh, has proven capacity to go to the moon and to Mars. India was the first Asian country, actually, to go to Mars orbit, if not landing. And also, uh, India collaborated with NASA for their Chandrayaan-1, which is their first moon mission in 2008, where uh, the NASA, a NASA mineralogy mapper that was uh, on the Chandrayaan-1 mission basically confirmed the presence of water ice on the south pole of the moon, right? And so, and also the one thing that I think is not really understood in the U.S. is that India is also starting to privatize its space sector. So since the last two years, there has been a big push for India to privatize its launch. For example, the Polar Satellite Launch Vehicle. There is the Vikram 1 and 2 that is being developed by Skyroot Aerospace, which is an Indian new commercial space uh, you know, actor. Uh, India has established the New Space India Limited that pushes for uh, public-private partnership. Indian companies are investing in, for example, how to develop microwave beaming of power, which is going to be critical for space-based solar power. And so you have a great uh, emergence of India's private space sector, very similar to the environment you saw when India advanced its information technology. Uh, service sector, right? And most of these developments are, of course, happening in the south of India as well. And so that's a very interesting development. And I don't think it is understood or captured in the U.S. Uh, ecosystem as well. Uh, so, uh, one thing that I would critique in terms of U.S. conversations around space, including from the entrepreneur community, is that uh, it tends to be very insular. It tends to be talking to each other and not really talking to actors outside where you could actually create 
create a lot of advantages, right? I know there are export control provisions, but you can still have a conversation in terms of what other actors are doing in terms of space, right? Now, countries to watch. I think the countries to watch, in my perspective, one is Indonesia. So Indonesia has a very uh, old space program, but then recently they have articulated ambitions to develop their own launch system. And what Indonesia is doing is very interesting. They are basically wanting to showcase the fact that they are very close to the equator. And so launching from their spaceport is going to be inexpensive. And you know, Michael, what was so interesting was that the president of Indonesia, he called up Elon Musk directly to basically persuade Mars to set up shop in Indonesia, arguing that if you launch your uh, Falcon 9 and other rockets from Indonesia, you will have to pay much less money in terms of fuel because you do not have to do orbital maneuvers. So you, and so that's a country to watch. I think uh, UAE and Saudi Arabia are two countries that are starting to invest a lot in space. So you'll have a lot of opportunities, including US uh, private space entrepreneurs. Uh, they have a, a 20, uh, a 10-year uh, space strategy, which they have just released. It's called National Space Strategy 2030. And they have one of the most ambitious space programs. They want to establish a city in Mars by 2117. Uh, and their argument is that UAE has showcased to the world the ability to build an amazing oasis by using uh, resources which are rare, by using technology, and they want to replicate such an example, for example, on Mars, right? And so their argument is that once you have such an ambition, you will automatically build a service sector, a technology sector that would be geared towards that but would build a lot of other additive uh, technologies in the meantime. So that's a country to watch. And actually, UAE has signed the Artemis Accords. So it's an interesting development. Uh, Luxembourg, I would say, is a... You, you wanted to say something, Michael. Uh, I, I, I don't want to take away from your steam. Uh, I, do wanna, I do want the, the, the listeners to understand where this is coming from. And again, I, I'll point to Scramble for the Skies, as an amazing publication, I would have had it here. I don't believe it's it's actually on my nightstand, so uh, I don't have it right here. Fantastic book, uh, impressive amount of research that you and your co-author have gone into. Is there are there other specific publications or books uh, that that are out already? I know I think you're working on one right now as well, but that that you could let our readers know to really understand the depth of knowledge and body of expertise that you have here. Yeah, sure. So if you're interested in India's space program, more than what I had written in the chapter. So I just recently published a paper with the French Institute of International Affairs, and it's it's available, it's free. So if you go to their website, you'll find my latest paper on India's space program. And also what I did in that paper was that I kind of uh, analyzed the uh, economic dimension of India's space program. So what is the contribution to the global economy and what they hope to contribute, right? And so that's one publication. And then the publication that I think uh, will be coming out uh, next year, actually, by 2023, is the book I'm working on now, which is uh, China's Grand Strategy and the Notion of Territoriality, where I'll be looking at not just space, but also the cases of the South China Sea and China's claims of South China Sea islands, as well as Tibet, Taiwan, and the East China Sea. So, but that is not available as yet. Should be should be out next year. Uh, I love I love that you just shared that again. The depth of your understanding of what is happening. I again, I have not seen that from almost anyone. And when you speak, people listen, and that is at the highest offices uh, and and any other room that I've been in with you or, or virtually with you. So I appreciate that, and I hope that our listeners really understand that what you have shared here is not just opinion. This is based on historical understanding, study, actual conversations that you've had, um, and and detailed analysis and research that you've done. So the the weight, I, I hope the weight of your words come across to our listeners as to what's happening. Uh, one question I had, I know we have to wrap up here soon. The UAE, how do you see the UAE operating? They they marshaled a force uh, from oil and gas, right? A, a force of economic power to create, you know, these, these um, oasis in the middle of the desert and to push this technology and to get to where they are. China had marshaled, you know, the billion people of resources under Xi Jinping and, uh, and prior uh, presidents to be able to get 
the economy there. They also siphoned off a lot of intellectual property, as we talked about, and they they have a they don't have a brain drain because they have enough economic prowess to kind of bring their people back. Uh, is where does the UAE sit in in that whole kind of hierarchy of of organizations? Yeah, so I see the UAE as a middle power and not a great power. And by great power, I mean those countries that have resources to project power. Uh, by power, I mean economic and military power, right? So the UAE is a middle power, has a very strong economy, but does not have such a strong military power projection capacity. And that's why it has very close relationships, including with Russia. And so uh, where do I see UAE? I think what UAE will be doing in the next few years is that it'll play a very critical role, for example, in the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs and the Committee for the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space to ensure that the great powers behave in a way that space will remain accessible and open to the middle powers, right? Now, the second important thing which the UAE is doing, and which, by the way, Saudi Arabia has just established a Saudi Space Commission, I mean, four years back, very close to Australia, 2018. So one thing, Michael, which is so different in the post-Cold War is that you have 72 nations with space agencies. During the Cold War, you had two major space countries, and then you had a few others, right? Today, you have the African Union wanting to establish an African space agency. You have, the, you have Turkey coming up with goals to go to the moon in collaboration with Russia. And so Saudi Arabia and UAE, I think the biggest challenge they're both having to question and answer is that you will run out of fossil fuel sometime right? Your reserves are only to a particular time. Uh, I know Aramco has come up with assessments that they will last for another 50 years, but might maybe, uh, you know, they will drain out before that. And Aramco is the major Saudi uh, Arabia oil company. And so what they are doing, which is very clever strategically, is that they are, tr they are turning their economies from fossil fuel-based uh, supported economies to becoming service economies, Right. And space is also viewed in that perspective. So once you develop uh, capacity, for example, to build a satellite, uh, UAE became the first Arab country to go to Mars last year uh, with an orbiter. They launched from a Japanese rocket. And then their, their assessment is that once you build that economy of scale, like you build the service sector, you have these ambitions where now you have the capacity to invest in the services for all good purposes by say 50 years, you'll become the biggest service sector for space. For example, when you have people living in space, you have, you know, uh, low earth orbit space uh, structures, right? You will become a very big service sector. Singapore is a big example for all these countries. Singapore was a backwater with nothing. Lee Kuan Yew changed Singapore to becoming the most advanced country today with the most the strongest passport in the world, right? And so uh, what Singapore did is that they turned themselves into a service sector. And this is something that uh, audiences, or I have not heard many people realize that China's biggest shining example to develop was Singapore. So Deng Xiaoping visited Singapore and asked Lee Kuan Yew, how have you turned your country into this miracle? And, and Lee Kuan Yew said, start with cities. You know, start with Shanghai, start with Shenzhen, build that structure. And so uh, in that context, I think UAE will do something very similar. They'll try to constitute rules and norms of the road by influencing great power behavior, uh, striking bilateral relationships with the great powers, including with Russia. And uh, and then they will turn to try themselves into a economy of scale, by, by which I mean a service-based economy that includes the space sector. So, and if, you, if your readers are interested, they have published their National Space Strategy Vision 2030, in which they highlight these particular aspects very clearly. I, I so much appreciate all of this insight. Every time I hear from you, read from you, listen uh, to you, I, I walk away uh, a smarter person because of it. And I, again, I hope our, our listeners do as well. When I want to, I want to close with some final thoughts. The problem we we one of the problems that we uncovered here was the lack of understanding of the general populace why space you brought up you're not seeing from the united states what is united states doing what are they defining as their space vision which they have not defined at all okay yes we'll get behind the artemis accords yes we'll kind of do some of these things but we don't define it uh again elon musk going to mars clearly china wanting to own the south uh, pole of, of the moon are there 
are there specific things that you're seeing? Obviously, I'm, I'm biased and um, Nebula has a, a very specific plan that we're executing on. But what what are you seeing in the private industry, especially with um, India? I'm not familiar with them as well. And, and I think it's fantastic. I'm grateful to hear that India is bolstering their private um, sector yeah. uh, for space. Are there any any other smaller visions or, or things that, that you're hearing in the ether? Yeah, for example, Nebula, let's take the example of Nebula, right? If you're thinking about developing data centers and server satellites, right? If I may uh, use a hypothetical case, what, what that means is that if you have the U.S. private sector building certain capabilities, that actually forces three very important things. And I think this is critical to be understood. And that is, one, it'll define standards. So what are the standards by which a market is going to operate? how the market share is going to be determined, those standards are set. And then what happens is that once you build this capacity, you also build a vibrant customer base, right? Because private sector do depend on customer base, but then standards are the key, right? I mean, today we talk about uh, some of the companies, uh, for example, that are investing in space tourism, for example, Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin and SpaceX, which is... uh, orbital space and the other two are suborbital. But even that is a very critical development. Most people think that this is a waste of money because you have billionaires going to space. The cost of a ticket, for example, that recently flew on Oxium space is $56 million. It's quite high. But I think what what we don't realize is that once you have this kind of investment and sharing of a launch, you then build a capability for mass launches that can bring down the costs. Right. And so what you do, you, you set standards for safety, you set standards for security, you, you set standards for how you actually uh, basically navigate that launch. And I think that is something that the private sector, especially in the U.S., has very successfully done. I mean, Michael, it's interesting, for example, when I talk to students in Africa, for example, or in remote areas of India, the biggest inspiration for them are the competencies and efficiencies that have been developed by the U.S private space sector in this 21st century, right? And so I think that's what the private sector has a big contribution to make. But I'll end by saying that, and I keep repeating this, I think it needs to be repeated based on my work and the amount of time I give to looking at the policy documents, for example, of China, right? That even if you have such competencies, for example, private investment, if you do not have a clear-cut goal of why you are doing all these investments, right? Because Musk is a private company. He might say that he wants to get to space and build a city. He will not be able to compete, for example, with the UAE, who wants to do a very similar thing because it's a, it's a nation state. It, it has presence in the United Nations, has much voting power. Unless we change that entire structure, which I don't see happening, the outer space treaty is still relevant. States are still uh, liable for how their private space companies behave. And so he will be in a disadvantage if you do not have a clear vision for why uh, private companies invest in space at all. So it's very, very important to have that vision. I, I couldn't agree more. Again, I am biased. Nebula has a very, very big vision that, that will be uh, teased out as we go through all these episodes and people start to hear different things. The the future, I believe, has an amazing amount of opportunity. And the work that you're doing, again, understanding if, if we all just had a map to space, you helping us understand what are the features on this map, India, UAE, China, Australia, United States, where, where are, are these big mountains, where are these big valleys, is a tremendous help. I would encourage everyone listening to to understand where they where we are, understanding this map, and decide where you want to be. Go as far as you possibly can, and take and then turn around and look at how did you get there. Even if just imaginary, uh, an imaginary process. We do need a lot of infrastructure. I do believe Musk has the opportunity as a, as a private company. I believe we have an opportunity as a private company. Thankfully, uh, we, we don't have time to, to kind of get into this, but thankfully, the United States is now saying they want to be a core customer. They don't an anchor tenant. They don't necessarily want to be the person paying for these things and doing these things. SpaceX has a huge customer in the Air Force and with NASA. They are not the only customer for SpaceX, but they are an anchor tenant, similar to the discussions we're having for the data centers and such and, and commercial companies as well. That is a model by which I, I hope India is also emulating where the government will be the anchor tenants to these private companies, giving them, giving them the, 
the ability to get through the valley of death, which I think was defined in the original aerospace push where you saw these companies with great ideas not get picked up. And, uh, and unfortunately, in our own history, we saw a division of the industrial complex and an actual military, um, which which was an unfortunate turnout. But now we're dealing with it and we need to do all these things. So uh, I would say in a, in a final thought from my side, if you have been encouraged and heard things that are great, if you are aware of things you were not aware of before, the spooky boogeyman in the closet that is right there to get you, um, be encouraged that you still have time to get something done. Be inspired to get something done and to do something. Uh, be empowered to start reaching out and doing it now. Do not wait. We need all of this uh, for the future of our kids uh, and their children. We need to start moving things forward. Namrata, any final thoughts from you? Yeah, I'll just say that uh, it's it's uh, space is actually, as you said, you know, it's inspiring. It brings people together, uh, and also uh, actually generates a lot of creativity and talent. But I'll also say that space also continues to be very strategic. We see this with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how Russia has used its space uh, collaboration to create pressure points, including refusing to launch OneWeb's 36 satellites because they didn't meet some of its conditions. So it's very important to be realistic because space continues to be determined by very nationalistic goals and national security uh, dimension, for example, with China and Russia. And so if we keep that mapping in mind, when we build our vision and our strategy uh, and expectations, we are likely to fulfill some of the goals that we have in a realistic manner. I think I'll, I'll end there, Michael. Dr. Namrata Gaswani, thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for your willingness to dive in deep and get us the information in consumable ways. Your book, Scramble for the Skies, was impactful to me and how I think uh, and all the articles that I've, I've actually seen you. And thank you for the constant work that you are doing. And I appreciate your time here today. Oh, thank you, Michael, for having me. It's a pleasure.